Thus we end the reading of God's holy word. Uh, This passage, uh, this chapter, uh, occurs in in part of a larger block of text that's sometimes called uh, Luke's travel narrative. It's loosely uh, uh, connected, it seems, at points, but the theme is Jesus is going up to Jerusalem to die. And as this progresses, more and more the focus is on not so much preaching to the crowds as on instructing his disciples in preparation for his impending death or exodus. I love that, uh, what it says in the, in the uh, transfiguration. So this is primarily instruction to people who already know him, uh, although the crowds are there in the background and hopefully some of them listening. So that, that's, that's the the larger context, and the smaller context immediately before is that Jesus has just had some very scorching words to say to a group of Pharisees, and the outcome of that is their determination to see him dead. So that's, uh, that's in the background that there's, a, there's an ominous note that precedes this. And so... Luke is addressing in this chapter, our Lord is addressing the idea that there are dangers on the road ahead and you must prepare in advance to be ready for those dangers and ready for the fears that will come with them. A few weeks ago, there was an item in the news about a couple in British, uh, not British Columbia, but uh, maybe it was British Columbia, I don't remember the geography. Uh, Their names were Jenny Gousset and Doug Inglis. They were experienced campers and backpackers. But this was their last outing because they made a fatal mistake, just uh, as unexpectedly, it was a fatal mistake. Here they are in the Canadian wilderness in Banff National Park, and they thought that they were safe because they had brought along their trusty can of pepper spray. And they were found dead, mauled by a grizzly bear with an empty can of pepper spray that they'd emptied out on the bear. Others have made the same mistake. There was a guide, a Christian man with five children a few years earlier who who was uh, an experienced guide who uh, who was guiding an elk hunter and had left his sidearm on the horse and emptied his pepper spray, and it didn't do the job. People think that the world around us is safe, but it isn't. The ungodly do not reckon uh, with the fact that they have a righteous and holy God to reckon with, whose wrath is revealed from heaven against them because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And Even we Christians don't really get it right many times. The world isn't a safe place, but quite often we we get it wrong in terms of the things that we fear. We we fear things that we shouldn't fear, and then we don't fear what we should fear. And so Jesus here is addressing this idea. We see dangers sometimes where they don't exist or they're minimal, and then we fail to see great dangers. Well, Fear is a natural response. Pardon me if I keep taking these off and putting them on. I I, I need to get a new set of bifocals. Uh, Fear is a natural response. It's a gift from God in a way in in that it, it 
it is given to God's creatures to get them away from bona fide dangers. But for us as fallen human beings, uh, we need help getting it right. Now, Scripture tells us that we're all kept in bondage by the fear of death. And even when it's not in the foreground, it is there in the background. And, uh, and yet, for us who know the Lord, it, it, it shouldn't be uh, so much like it is. And so we, we often get these things wrong. Some of you may remember the, the uh, story of the Lord of the Rings. And in the first of those uh, three books of the trilogy, the, the band of, of uh, hobbits have set out uh, toward Rivendell. And they come to an inn in a place called Bree. And there in the inn, they encounter a mysterious stranger whose name is Strider. And they are frightened of this man, but as it turns out, he is there to protect them from a great evil. We're often like that. Uh, it seems we, we need to get the fears right, and we don't. And, and so what Jesus is, is addressing here is how do we handle fear? How do we have our minds, our thoughts right for addressing fear. And you probably know, there's a whole body of literature, you might even say, people have reflected on this idea over millennia. And, and one of the recurring themes that you run into outside of the Bible and, and, and uh, outside of Christianity uh, is an idea in which there is partial truth, the idea that having a set of convictions about what really matters, about what's important, that idea, that will help you to face danger. And as I said, there's partial truth in that. So now to quote a great philosopher whose name was Hub McCann. Uh, some of you will recognize that name from Secondhand Lions. Uh, he said this, honor, courage, and virtue mean everything. Power and money, money and power mean nothing. Good always triumphs over evil. Love, true love, never dies. Well, there's some good ideas. Now, from another culture, here's some other words. One who is a samurai must, before all things, keep constantly in mind, by day and by night, the fact that he has to die. That is his chief business. Now, there is something about speeches like this, about writing like this, that, that does attract us, that does, that does grip us, whether it be Winston Churchill's We Will Fight Them on the Beaches speech, or that wonderful climactic scene in Mrs. Miniver, or Aragorn's speech at the Gates of Mordor in The Return of the King, or other such things. We love those things. There are, there, are some, there are some stirring things in them, because they do hold up these things that are common grace virtues. And yet, and yet, like Pastor Stewart so often said, they're, they're partly true. But half-truths can become whole lies. In order for us to face fear, in order for us to get it right about fear, and whether you are young or old, this is true, the same thing is true for all of us. We have to get the fear thing right. We have to get the fear thing right. Right. Now, returning now to, to 
our passage. On the surface, at, at first reading, you, you wonder, how are these things connected? How do they fit together? And this is the underlying theme, that Jesus is showing dangers to be faced, and Jesus is showing how to face them with the truth, with the correct ideas that we need to have in order to face danger in a God-honoring way. And so my thesis for you this evening goes like this. Proper fear, proper fear based on truth gives us courage. Proper fear based on truth gives us courage. Well, Jesus starts out with the, this, this issue of hypocrisy, and I think most of us know pretty well what, what that means in a way. And, of course, it has been the theme of his rebuke, his his woes pronounced against the Pharisees because they, they, if there's one thing that characterized them, it was hypocrisy. And, and of course, the connection there certainly indicates that, that what they were doing is something you and I can be doing, but we're also moving into this idea of dealing with dangers and fears here. There's a fear that in hypocrisy, you could be tempted to cover up the fact that you belong Christ. But now let's, let's consider the idea of hypocrisy because it's, it's something that's so pervasive. The word comes from ancient Greek theater. Hypocrites is a stage actor in ancient Greek drama, and it was a customary thing that the actors in ancient Greek dramas wore masks. And so you couldn't see who it was underneath, and of, of course in Greek drama also men played both men and women, uh, so, but the, the thing is, th- there is something on the surface and there's something underneath, and that's the idea. Hypocrisy means when we project something or try to project something, and underneath there is something else. And here we have Jesus warning, beware, beware, take heed, see to it. Uh, this is a warning... Sorry about that. One of my professors at seminary used to say, where was I before truth broke in? Uh, The uh, uh, hypocrisy is something that is a danger. And that is playing on the the note, the theme that runs through these passages. He warns against it. He says this is a danger. It is something that could get you in trouble. And one thing you can see if you think about it even a little bit is that our God is a God whose word is truth. Our God is a God who hates lies. And hypocrisy is a way of lying with our behavior. Well, let me point out a few things now, three in particular that make for hypocrisy. First of all, even for Christians, there are remnants of our old nature. Is that not true? Sanctification has to do with our daily seeking to put to death the ways of the old person and to put on the new. And our fallen nature is such that we tend not to love the truth. Paul says that 
uh, in his indictment against the human race in Romans chapter 1, that although they knew God, they would not glorify him as God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And what does that mean? It means that we know God, we know something of God, for God has made it known, Paul says, and yet we would like to unknow it. We would like not to know it. We would like for it not to be true. And that is fallen human nature. And so put another way, it means we habitually lie to ourselves in our fallen condition. That's not a pleasant thought, but it is what Paul says. It is the word of God. And so there is this fundamental dishonesty in fallen human nature. And you and I haven't completely conquered that, have we? Well, then, the next thing is that in our families, in our jobs, in friendships, in relationships, it's very easy for us to be relating in in roles. Now, we have God-ordained roles, husband and wife, for instance, uh, employee, employer, and what have you. But very easily, the roles, and especially when you add things like birth order, pecking order, and stuff like that, that so often are part of family life, uh, there are roles that we are kind of pushed into. There are expectations for us to meet, and we have to play the role to meet those expectations. And so we get accustomed to that. And then there's another thing, and that is that we want not to be rejected. We want people to like us. We want people to love us. And we know if we don't meet their expectations, we know if we defy their expectations, we know if we fall short of their expectations, or they think we have, we may be rejected. And so the role-playing stuff kind of goes into high gear. And then there's another thing. Jesus likens hypocrisy to leaven, leaven, yeast. Picture yeast in bread dough. Some of you are bakers. Uh, My wife's a wonderful baker, but for my health, I can't eat things she baked the way I used to. Um, But what happens, it pervades the entire entirety of the dough. It affects everything. You have heard of people with split personalities. Such people really do exist. And what happens is the role playing kind of takes over. And this is a sad state of affairs. They don't even really know who they really are. And so all of these things make hypocrisy dangerous in addition to being something abhorrent. But getting back to what I said from Romans chapter 1, in a way, hypocrisy is fallen human nature. It is fallen human nature. And so before I get to the words of Jesus that point to the way out, I want you to consider first that Jesus spoke first to his disciples and to Uh, point you to uh, some thoughts about that. Uh, When Jesus gave the bread of life discourse, a bunch of people left. And so he asked the 12, are you going to leave too? And Peter gave an answer that's, that's memorable, which is, Lord, to whom shall we go? You 
have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You have the words of life. They are transforming words. These are disciples Jesus was speaking to. They have already been called out of the world. And the first step away from hypocrisy is becoming a disciple of Jesus. We need him to do something in us, something for us, in order to make us something other than hypocrites. We need a heart that is not prone to pretending at the core. So we need that new relationship with Jesus, and of course, I'll have more to say about that in a moment, but now we look at the words of Jesus, and let me reread the second and third verse now. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Think, for those of you who can remember your conversion, what happened? God began to make you aware that he knew everything about you, didn't he? He saw everything. And, of course, the degree to which you understand this at conversion can vary tremendously from one to another. But for many of us, it was an awareness. God sees me, and I'm in a heap of trouble. God sees me and knows me. Nothing can be hidden from God. Well, that's, that's there in the backdrop. But now Jesus says, this is going to go a step further. There comes a day when everything will be out there and you will be completely exposed. And so from the standpoint of ideas and things to think about, here is another big idea. There will be a day of reckoning coming down the road, and it's here in, 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 in every passage really in this chapter. Everything about us is known to God. But everything about us one day will be brought out in in a great courtroom scene. And so now let me ask you in regard to hypocrisy. Are are there things about you that you are hiding? Now I should qualify this by the way. I mean I'm not saying in, in, in calling it hypocrisy that you don't disclose everything on your mind to every person you meet. Um, That should go without saying but I'm saying it. No. But the question is, are there things about you that you conceal that are important things? Are, are, are there, is, do you play a different role in public from what you really are? Well, Jesus says, get away from that. Recognize it's a danger. Hypocrisy is a great danger. Well, now, and of course, as I started out saying, and especially if you're doing this, hiding the fact that you're a Christian, that would be the worst kind of hypocrisy. Well, moving on now to verses 4 through 7, which I'll read now. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
The first imperative was to beware hypocrisy. The second is a double. Don't fear men, but fear God. Now, this is not to say that that men cannot harm you. And, of course, we, we recognize that. Jesus knows it full well. He's headed toward being murdered judicially himself. And, and just to think of what evil men and evil governments can do and have done can make you shudder. And then there's torture. It's a dreadful thing to think about. When Daniel's three friends uh, were refusing to worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue, uh, they weren't just offered a dose of midazolam to put them nicely to sleep. They were thrown into a blast furnace. But our Lord rescued them, didn't he? But he doesn't always do that. We have 20 centuries behind us of martyrs. And in the 20th century, more than all the previous 19 together, it's, it's a reality. It is a possibility. And as our culture and our civilization continue to rot minute by minute, day by day, these things seem like they could become more possible now than ever. Um, and so it, it's, it's not surprising. We think of people thrown in jail without a trial, given sentences they don't deserve, knowing they may never see the outside again. Those are dreadful thoughts. So how do you face them? Well, Jesus tells us how. Notice, he speaks very emphatically here of fearing God. He says, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That is emphatic. That is a now hear this, listen up moment. God is our covenant Lord. God is our creator. He upholds us moment by moment by the word of his power, even as he sustains the planets in their orbits and knows each of them by name. We know all that. We know God is a just judge, that God is omniscient, seeing everything, omnipotent in order to, or I should say, able to control everything. And it only makes sense to respect that. It only makes sense to respect that. And so fearing him, well, what does that mean? It means you wake up and know this is the center, this is the absolute most fundamental aspect of reality. God who was when there was nothing else, who is and who is to come. Men may kill the body. God controls your eternal destiny. And Jesus says, in effect, ponder this. Ponder this. So so let me ask a question. The idea of the fear of God is not new to any of you. But how constantly... Do we think of this? Isn't not true that we have days, maybe not days, moments, minutes, hours, where we don't even think about it, don't even think about God? This is something that we should seek. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I mean, until we come to Christ, we're fools. We come to Christ by coming to to the beginnings of the fear of God. But we must seek 
as for silver and gold, as the Proverbs tell us. And as we do that, seeking truth in the word of God, the Lord gives the fear of the Lord. This is another instance of, of uh, St. Augustine's great prayer. Command what you will, but give what you command. But now notice, there are more words said here uh, about the second aspect of fear than the first. Let me read from verses 6 and 7. He says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You're of more value than many sparrows. Now, there is something striking here in that, on the one hand, he's very emphatically just said, fear. And then just right after that, he says, don't be afraid. Those are the words of every angel practically that you find in the Bible coming to bring words to men. The first thing is, fear not. There's gospel in that. There's gospel here. And so as the Lord gets our attention and we recognize the reality of God, he also shows us his favor in his son. And so he is doing here. Think of this. The sparrow that's only worth a couple copper coins. I mean, think of how debased our currency is. (laughs) Not worth really much to men. And he says every one of them is known to God. He takes note of them and elsewhere when he uses this same imagery. He says not one falls to the ground apart from God. God is sovereign over their lives and deaths. He cares about them, small as they are. And he says you are worth more than many sparrows. The hairs of your head, declining as their number may be in some cases. Few as they are. Or many, in the case of some of you who are younger uh, or have different genes. Uh, they are all known to God. And think, when David says these things in Psalm 139, we have to remember that I mean, David is saying, you know me, but that means you love me also. And so he's reminding them that, reminding them of that. And then he says, you're more worth than many sparrows. Now think with me about this. You're worth more. How much more? How does God value you? He values you at the price of your redemption, the infinite value of the life of the Son of God is how he valued you. And so we have two ideas here that God wants you to hold together. That God is to be feared. But if you trust in Christ, you need fear nothing else. And now God is your father. And so he's reminding them of that. But he's also saying, think about these things. Think about them. Fix them in your thoughts. Ponder them. Ponder them. Do you believe Jesus laid down his life for you? That Jesus became your hypocrisy, your sin, your fear of man in order to redeem you? Then you have nothing else to fear. Fear God more than you fear men. Remember God and you don't need to fear men. Well, my third point then addresses the concrete situations. This second point 
in a way was, was broad. It doesn't address particular situations. Now we come to something more particular where we do meet the fear of man again. And here we come to something that is equally serious and our third imperative, which is implicit in what he says, and that is you must confess Jesus. You must confess Jesus. Well, what does that mean? You may remember in Romans chapter 10 when Paul says, if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. The primary idea there in Romans is faith, the idea that you must believe these things about Jesus, that he is God the Son, that he is the Son of God, that he is our Redeemer, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, come to deliver us from our sins. Those are all vital things. But to those ideas of faith, here Jesus adds two words, before men. So now, here's a question. Are you willing to confess Jesus before men? This is something to think about. What does this mean? It can mean any of a variety of things. Think of one of those girls who was murdered at Columbine High School. And what little we know of her last words went something like this. Are you a Christian? Yes, I am. And I believe it was Dylan Klebold shot her. Are you willing to confess, though it may cost your life? Well, and, and then we're not necessarily in any real danger except maybe some unpleasantness, maybe somebody being ugly to us with their response, maybe somebody deciding that you're one of those and wanting to avoid you. But are you willing to share your faith? Are you willing to confess? Now, uh, many of you may say, I, I don't know how to do that. Well, you can learn. You can learn. Uh, I could commend to you any of a number of, of, of evangelistic methods, just for instance, uh, I happen to be partial to Way of the Master, Ray Comfort's training method. If you go online and go on YouTube and look for 180 the movie, you, you will see some amazing things. This man sharing his faith in what we would consider a particularly pagan environment in Southern California, you see people being gripped even as he does it. So check it out. You can learn. But now, why should you? Well, Jesus tells you here. Those who own him before men, when that great day comes that, that is the idea that undergirds, that runs through these whole, all these passages, he says, those who confess me before men, I will own before the angels of God. Once again, picture a great courtroom scene. Uh, I love the old Puritan name for it, the great assize. The great assize. And if we have confessed him, though it may cost us a friend, though it may earn us a cold shoulder from somebody we'd like to have good relations with, though it may cost more, Jesus will own us on that great day. But to those who deny him, and I, I should say this, remember Peter denied him three times. What we're talking about here is something that becomes habitual. Something that becomes habitual. And 
Jesus says, I will say on that great day, I will deny them. I will say, no, this one's not one of mine. This one's not one of mine. So here is the third. It's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought. Uh, There is a quote from Revelation 21. And since I can't find it in my notes, I'll just flip over there to read it to you. Uh, That says something sobering. It says that cowards, the cowardly, will have their place in the lake of fire, which is the second death. The courage comes from Christ. It has to come from Christ. We have to seek it from Christ. When we think of these things, it will put steel in your souls. And that is something that we all need. We have to be, we ought to be willing to confess. Here is the quote. As for the cowardly, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were willing to confess and not deny. Our God is our God who is the true God. We will not worship your statue. And so my third point then in summary is that remembering the great assize will help you confess Christ. So there's a danger of being intimidated, isn't there? Well, remembering the greatest size will help you confess Christ. Well, now our last point has to do with the fact that Christians have been and will be dragged before human courts. Some of you may know the story of Brother Wormbrand. Brother Wormbrand went to prison in Romania for some 13 years, most of which was in solitary confinement. And he went there because he confessed Christ but he wouldn't have traded that for anything. Uh, This last uh, part of these 12 verses at the beginning of Luke's gospel envisions a scene where a situation where you or I could be brought before a human court and have to give an answer for the hope that is within us as 1 Peter chapter 3 speaks of. And and by the way, I should tell you, I, I am omitting the sin against the Holy Spirit in this chapter. I hope you don't mind. I had to make a choice and consider how long this would take. Uh, so we're not addressing that this evening. But, but thinking of this, uh, you face the fear of man. You face the, the fear, the intimidation of men. But you can also face the fear of the, the prospect of, of being overwhelmed, being in over your head. When Peter and John were brought before the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, Here they are, two fishermen, and all of these guys in this Sanhedrin are are like people with PhDs in theology or Old Testament. They're, they're, They're scholars, they're experts, and yet Peter preached two great sermons before them, and so did Stephen. Jesus says, In that hour, the Holy Spirit will give you the words. And this has been true throughout church history, whether you're reading, for instance, about uh, great saints uh, 
uh, in the fifth century who had to face down an empress or Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. It, the same thing is true. But I'm going to give you an illustration from the Westminster Assembly, which is familiar to most, most of us, I think. This isn't exactly a threatening situation. But there in the Westminster Assembly, they, of course, they debated everything that eventually found its way into our confession. And one day, there was debate going on. I believe this was over doctrine of the church. And there was a man standing up and speaking whose name was Selden. And he was known as the learned Selden. This guy was brilliant, and he had evidently read everything. That's the sort of person. And all the while he's talking, he, he's wrong. He's wrong. He's got his ecclesiology wrong. And so somebody's looking over at the four Scottish commissioners, and here's the youngest of them, George Gillespie, the youngest guy there. He's in his 20s. And they notice that George is writing something, and so they think he's drafting a response to Selden. And so after Selden has finally finished his speech, he sits down, and George Gillespie stands up. And in less than 10 minutes, he destroys Selden's argument. He refutes him thoroughly. And so naturally, the person who saw this wanted to get a look. What, what did he write? And so they go over and get a look at what George has written, and it's written in Latin and translated into English as well as I can remember it, all it says is, Lord, help, over and over and over. And he did. And then think of Luther at the Diet of Worms. I, I trust you all know this story. Here he is before the most powerful people in Europe, excepting the Pope. The most powerful people in Europe. Here's Charles V. He's an emperor, not just a king. Here are all these bishops and cardinals. Here are all these people who could very easily get him burned at the stake. And he knows that. And it's terrifying. And yet on that last day of Luther's defense, this is the conclusion of what he says. This humble German monk, Hans Luther's son, says this. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. We could multiply examples like that. I was trying to think of the name Chrysostom, confronting the empress. Others, many, John Huss. Jesus died not to make your salvation possible, but to accomplish it, to redeem a people whom he will get safely to heaven. He is furnishing the tools and will work through your obedience, through your meditation, through your prayer. He will bring you there. And he will enable you to face the dangers and the fears as they arise. 
So how do we deal with fear? My thesis for you this evening has been proper fear based on truth gives courage. Jesus is looking after you. He does want you to be realistic. There are things that are dangerous out there. He's not saying just don't pay any attention to them. But he's saying think of God's truth. Amen. Join me now for prayer, if you will. Holy Father, we know that faith is your gift. We know that the fear of the Lord is your gift. And oh Lord, how often our fear isn't what it ought to be and neither is our faith. I think of that hymn writer who said, Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint, yet I love thee and adore. Oh, for grace to love thee more. Oh, Lord, increase in us the delight in your word, the fear and the love for you. Grow us in the fear of God. Make us to be faithful witnesses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.